Hi, Freshhead listeners. It's Will. Happy 2024. That sounds a bit weird, given that it's already February. But we ended up taking a break from producing new episodes for nearly two months. It was a needed break after a busy year. I can't tell you how much work it takes to produce weekly episodes. Preparation can take weeks, sometimes months, finding new guests, engaging in their work, organizing the interview, and finally recording and editing the episode. We then transcribe the interview and develop a reading list to go with it. It's a huge amount of work, and every time I think it's too much for me, I get an email from a listener saying how much Fresh Ed has impacted their education or career. And that keeps us going. We do it for you. So as we start this year, I just want to say thank you for your continued support, especially those who have donated to the show. We literally couldn't run this show without you. If you want to donate, please head on over to freshedpodcast.com slash donate. This begins our eighth year, and we have some big announcements in the works. I'll send these out first through our newsletter in the coming weeks, and then talk about them on the podcast. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy all our new episodes this year, and encourage you to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, now on with today's show. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we look at educational reform over time. My guest is Patricia Bromley, an associate professor in the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. The big but most dramatic finding to us was a decline in levels of reported reform activity in recent decades, which in retrospect, I think, of course, there's a decline. We sort of know that the neoliberal era, say like starting late 80s through the 90s and sort of through the 2000s, was a period of massive global change. And we know that sort of set of policy prescriptions has come under a lot of attack recently, a lot of pushback. And there isn't really a a new consolidated set of things that's arisen. Together with Jared Furuta, Ri Kijima, Lisa Overbay, Minju Choi, and Heitor Santos, Patricia has recently published the article, Global Determinants of Education Reform, 1960 to 2017. In the article, the team reports findings using their novel database of education reforms called the World Education Reform Database, which is freely available online. I've put a link in the show notes. Patricia Bromley, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi, Will. Thanks so much for having me on today. So you are responsible with a team, I would imagine, for creating something called the World Education Reform Database. And I I went on to the website and I was blown away that it has over 10,000 policy changes in 189 countries since 1970. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. I just want to know sort of why on earth you decided that this was even something that was needed in our field. Yeah, thank you so much for the kind words. It's been a real journey creating this database. So the idea for it came out of discussions with my co-principal investigator on the project. That's Rie Kajima at the University of Toronto. And about five years ago, Rie and I were talking about her amazing work on the effects of international assessments on education systems. And she was trying to figure out if these assessments are shaping national education policies in systematic ways. So we were looking around for data to help her research this. And we realized there were some targeted sort of data sets of cross-national reforms 
So that would be something like the year a country established compulsory schooling. But there was nothing comprehensive of the, the sort of range of effects that assessments might be having. When we were looking at what was out there, we noticed several studies that drew their information about targeted policies from international reports. So reports to the World Bank, OECD, and so on. And when we were looking at the reports, we thought we could actually pull out a larger range of reforms, partly drawing on a method I had used in a previous body of research where I extracted information from textbooks. So that was sort of what led to its emergence, and it, and it grew and grew and grew from there over the past five years. So it's been five years that you've been putting this together. Yeah, that's right. We released it publicly last year. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I just, I downloaded it in preparation for this interview and sort of scrolled through the these policy reforms, and it was quite overwhelming. And I kept thinking, it must have been quite difficult to compile this list. So, you know, what were some of the big challenges that you and your team faced when constructing a novel data set to this magnitude? Yeah, it was challenging, also very fun. We have been working with a large team on it. So it took us about a year, an academic year, to even figure out if it would be doable. So we spent about a year piloting different kinds of like coding approaches. So this is sort of ways of pulling information from the reports. And some of the challenges we faced were sort of coming up with a definition of reform was one of them or policy change and coming up with a definition that across lots of different research assistants and different report types people would pull more or less the same information. There's always some difference, but we try to aim for sort of a 0.8 on our inter-rater reliability test, like standard social science um, level of reliability. So it took us months and months of testing out definitions and coding instructions to get to that level and then deciding what reports to collect and gathering them. So Yeah, and it sounds like you worked with a lot of students and students are transient, so you're probably dealing with this constantly changing team. I would just imagine it was rather a complex endeavor. I want to dig into this issue that you sort of just raised in this first year as you were sort of conceptualizing, piloting, trying to figure out how to do this. And that's over this notion of what do we even mean by education reform? So, you know, where did you land with your team? How do you, in a sense, conceptualize this term that, on the one hand, is seems so commonplace, but once you start unpicking it, it probably is hard to come up with a definition, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is actually a really fascinating conceptual issue, as well as a kind of technical problem we had to solve. So we ended up landing on a definition of reform that has three parts. So the, the three parts are that it's systemic, non-routine, and purposeful or planned. We decided reform is something, so the systemic part, that suggests a change that's linked to some kind of broader vision of education as a system, not an individual school, say, operating on its own, disconnected from the environment it's linked to. So systemic was part of it. Non-routine is so some kind of change. There are lots of kinds of changes that are quite routine that even show up in reports, for example, as sort of annual budget reauthorizations. And this might show up as a legislative change every year. So we didn't count that as really a change. That's a routine activity. Personnel reauthorizations or another one. What would be a non-routine change then? So there would be anything that, that's different in the system. 
So any change maybe is a better way to think of it. So it has to mark a change from what was coming before. Something we decided on, on the change front, is you can think of changes occurring at, at different levels. There can be sort of incremental change or sort of transformational paradigm shifting change. We opted to lean on the incremental side of this because we were aiming to put together a pretty comprehensive list of possibilities for people. So the idea was that if we include from the incremental through the transformational, then others can take the list and sort of, if they only want to look at transformational paradigm shifting laws or something, they can exclude, look through what we report and exclude the ones that don't count. So we went quite broad. I think, so for some people that wouldn't count as reform, for example, they only think of reform as shifting a paradigm and maybe a policy is a small change. Right. So can you give an example of that? Like the difference between what might be considered incremental change, non-routine change in a, say, system versus transformational change, non-routine change in a system. Sure. So maybe something like, let's say, learning differences that kids in elementary school are already mainstreamed. And then there's a, a reform or a policy change that's passed to say, actually, now kids in high school will also be mainstream kids with learning differences who might have been in a different system before. That could be incremental, sort of one policy change that builds on some prior policy change. We would capture sort of each of those as individual reforms or policy changes in our database. And then something like maybe the wave of neoliberal changes that went on in the world or new public management could use that label too. For some, that counts as a reform. So big reform is neoliberal changes to education. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of policy changes linked to that whole shift in thinking of education systems as managed by market principles or something. Right. So like performance pay for teachers or bonuses or something like that, which never happened before. Yeah. Yeah. By some definitions, the individual policy is not itself like a giant reform. The bigger picture is. So for us, we just count them all as single policy changes and don't differentiate. And then the last one that you talk about for education reform is this notion of purpose. So we think of reform or policy change as a planned administrative action. There's lots and lots of change that happens in the world and, and to education systems and in schools that's just change, just regular change. It's not a sort of intentional administrative act. So we wanted to distinguish sort of other kinds of change from the intentional administrative change goals of reform. Do these education reforms then, like what's the relationship to policy here, right? Like in a sense, what were you looking at? Were you looking at specific documents, the written word? Were you looking at websites? What, you know, how do you tangibly hold an education reform that you could then analyze? So I think you could use the word policy as interchangeable in my uses of the word, not by all definitions, but it would be fine to call it a database of policy changes. That said, I think depending on how you define policy, we probably have some things in there that might not fit. So if, if a policy is like a legislative act, 
say, then we have some things that are frameworks of action or vision plans that, that we include that might not fit some definitions of policy. And what is the relationship between sort of education reform policies and action and practice? Because obviously there's usually a big divide between what, say, a government might adopt and what ultimately goes on in classrooms. So how, you know, like, so in, in other words, why is it important to look at the text of these policy documents over time? Yeah, it's a big question. And I think about it in a couple of ways. One is that, like, the text of the policies or discourse is important in its own right, because it, it tells us what sort of legitimate goals are. These are public facing and especially internationally public facing reports of what countries intend to do. So that's giving us insight into what our countries saying is the right thing to do in education, regardless of whether they're doing it or not. This second part, I think, is that it's sort of the best we can do. We may not know for sure if reforms are implemented or not, but we still can look at, for example, if reforms that countries talk about expanding access do in fact lead to expanded enrollment rates. It's also very plausible if we think about the sort of policy process that policy adoption, implementation, and effects sort of have complicated relationships. So you can imagine scenarios where the discourse actually does help shape the outcomes, even if implementation is weak, because it draws attention to a problem or um, sort of facilitates other actors to get involved. You could sort of understand how a discourse can almost frame the way we should see the world and understand practice. And even if the practice ends up looking slightly different, the discourse and the ideas that are circulating in that moment are hugely powerful. So given those sort of caveats of the concept of educational reform and, and why looking at these, the text is so important, what did you find, right? What are some of the big trends when you look from the 1970s up till, you know, recent times, what do we see? What do you find when you look across these policies across the world? The big, but most dramatic finding to us was a decline in levels of reported reform activity in recent decades, which in retrospect, I think, of course, there's a decline. We sort of know that the neoliberal era, say like starting the late 80s through the 90s and sort of through the 2000s, was a period of massive global change. And we know that sort of set of policy prescriptions has come under a lot of attack recently, a lot of pushback. And there isn't really a, a new consolidated set of things that's arisen. So it makes sense that there is this decline. But somehow when we first plotted the trends, we really weren't expecting to see this kind of mountain-shaped curve with a big drop-off in reported reforms recently. And we think it does sort of reflect the drop-off of global attention to a big sort of paradigm shift in education. Let's unpack that a little bit. So what you're sort of saying, this mountain-like shape, is in from the beginning of your data set, you sort of see this intensification of the sheer quantity of reforms that are happening in individual countries. And that sort of continues to rise up until about the 2000s. And then it sort of starts decreasing until today. That's the idea. Yeah, exactly. And especially starting in sort of the late 2000s, so 2008, 2009, 2010. Okay, so like after the global financial crisis, you start seeing this big shift and so 
it sounds like one of the ways you're reading this is that there was a there was a paradigm shift from the neoliberal era that you were saying, which produced all sorts of reform ideas and efforts, which then, of course, countries were quickly adopting and changing and putting into place. And now there's sort of this move away from that neoliberal era, or at least, uh, you know, I guess, how do you read that decline a little bit more? That becomes a, a question, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So I think the, the sort of most direct reaction is exactly what, what I had said and you were um, echoing there of it's the kind of pushback against some of the policies of neoliberalism that came under criticism. But I think additional or deeper layer maybe of what could be going on is sort of linked to the entire, what we can think of as the entire liberal order. So this is the kind of international foundation of democracy and capitalism, and human rights, and rule of law, these principles as being the foundation of the global liberal order, especially since World War II. And on many fronts, this whole order is under attack uh, or eroding in some way. So there are lots of broad trends like declining levels of democracy worldwide, growing restrictions on civil society worldwide, increasing sort of rollbacks of rights for women and other various groups, rising populism, all these kinds of trends we hear about in the media, we can think of as, as attacks on the liberal order. And part of what a liberal order does is sort of believe in reform. Like th this is part, it's rule of law as the way of achieving progress. So if we undercut this whole world order, we would sort of expect less reform in general. It, beyond education, it would be interesting to compare other sectors. Yeah, right. So you're sort of saying that this decline in the liberal order along these different lines that you're, you're articulating would then translate into policymakers producing less policy because they have sort of a less faith in what policy can do in the rule of law that might govern different countries. Yeah, I think that's right. In the way we have sort of come to understand it as looking, this isn't to say change wouldn't happen. It just, it wouldn't look like this necessarily, like right. formally codified sort of rule of law type practices. And do we, the policies that are being created more recently, even if there's fewer of them across time, do we know if the content is different? Like, are the ideas that are sort of coming out different to like really show, you know, the beginnings of what a paradigm shift might be? Or, you know, maybe it's like this multipolar world and ideas, you know, there's all different ideas that are coming out and you wouldn't be able to group them so easily under one paradigm yet. Yeah, I love where you're going with this. So a few things come to mind. I mean, one is it's really important to keep in mind that our source of reforms is it reports to international organizations. So what we are sort of reporting here is the international discourse or discourse intended for an international audience, which is part of this whole like liberal internationalism. So it very well could be that it, that's part of what's eroding and, and maybe countries or regions have a lot going on, but they're not sort of reporting as much or participating in a consolidated way at the international global level. So our data, when we look at the trends we see in terms of content, we don't show very dramatic differences by region, for example. But you might find that if you looked within countries 
not in terms of what they're reporting to the global community, just internally or in regional associations. So I think what you're saying could be happening, a kind of regionalism and undercutting of the international side of things. I will say one sort of striking thing we have seen, we have a new paper coming out that that does topic modeling of the content of the, so inductively using computational methods, looking at the trends in the reforms. Um, And we find several themes that that are various kinds of emphases on rights. So right to education, anti-discrimination kinds of reforms. And those, there are three different sort of types of topics, I guess, reform themes around there. Those do decline in recent era, which would speak to that. Although I don't want to overstate things, there are many kinds of reforms about inclusion and access that continue to increase dramatically, sort of in line with the education for all movement. So those continue to grow. It's just this rights language specifically that seems to be sort of dampening. That's interesting. Is that the part that's most closely connected to this liberal world order, do you think? Like in terms of reform policy ideas and discourses, is that the main sort of proxy in a sense for the liberal world order? And and access and quality sort of, is it somehow connected, but sort of beyond the liberal world order as well? It could be. I mean, you can certainly think of access and inclusion as having lots of grounds other than rights or individual empowerment. I think there's some work talking about the expansion of masculine as actually, this is in political science, as partly driven by conflict within countries to help elites maintain power. So it wasn't a a democratic reason for expanding education. It was to maintain control. We could think of lots of possibilities for that, but I don't have the answers to these big questions. I love thinking about them though. Yeah. I mean, you can just see where, you know, all of this empirical evidence still needs a lot of theory to begin to sort of make sense of what's actually happening. Yes, I really hope people will make good use of it. I hope so too. I mean, I only looked at it for like 15 minutes. I was blown away and was thinking, oh my gosh, I sent it right to a PhD student actually and said, have a look at this. You know, I guess, like you said, you're you're looking at the international sort of reports going to international organizations and trying to think about this international discourse that exists in education reform. You know, who are the actors here that you are looking at when it comes to the international organization or the, you know, how do we make up these the different actors in that space? We turn to ones that are commonly recognized as some of the main ones. So this would be the, the World Bank, OECD, UNESCO, for the different kinds of education reports they produce. And, and in the existing comparative education literature, they're sort of identified as the key international organizations. I think, though, at the backdrop of this, we can think of academics and and sort of universities or the expansion of science or something as being really central and cross-cutting because the knowledge that academia sort of is producing often becomes the organizing principles around some reform efforts. So things that come to mind right now are, for example, early childhood education and that expansion or social and emotional well-being. And in both of those, like educational psychology has been very central in creating a kind of movement and evidence base that leads us to this road of reforms in these areas. So we also included some encyclopedias produced by sort of experts of country reports. So not just the international organizations, but also 
education experts in general. So you have sort of the World Bank, the OECD, that sort of group that has, you know, come to power. And there's been some really good work historically about how they've come to power over in that sort of post-World War II period. You've also included these sort of academic experts and how the ideas that get pushed by academics, they have power within this international space as well. But you also include international non-governmental organizations, NGOs. So how do they fit into this picture as well? So we've used them a little differently in our research as in we haven't used sort of NGO reports or documents as part of where we're collecting the data from, but we do find that they are central actors in spreading reforms. So in some of the analyses we've done, we, we show that memberships in international non-governmental organizations sort of increase the numbers of reforms that countries do. We think of them as sort of carrying these global education principles to countries carriers and enactors and facilitators of the global discourse. And we find a similar effect for World Bank education loans. So at least for several decades, education loans from the World Bank were linked to increased levels of, of education reform in a country. Okay, right. And if you look at this over time, and we know that there's like a decline that's happening since the 2000s in the number of education reform, what can you say about, say, the World Bank and non-governmental organizations particularly international one, you know, what's, has their relationship to education reform changed over time? We did find an interesting shift in the sort of influence of these two actors over time, uh, maybe related to our earlier discussion about neoliberalism. But we find that the influence of the World Bank was quite strong early on, say in the 1970s, 1980s. World Bank lending was linked to increased numbers of reforms in a country. But in recent decades, there is not as strong an association. So it declines. Not necessarily the influence of the World Bank, but their direct effect in terms of triggering reforms. And it's the opposite for NGOs. It's possible these trends are even related, that as the, the bank came under some criticism and starts to use community organizations and NGOs, for example, more as the enactors of reform. So we see this sort of opposite trend of the two of them. Interesting. It's quite a fascinating sort of insight. But what you're not saying is that the amount of loans that the World Bank is providing, that hasn't decreased, right? They're still lending money to education reform or education sectors, but it's just the amount of education reform that comes out of these loans is decreasing. Yes, absolutely. And it also could be the case that the bank is sort of less trying to create national education reforms in countries. So they position themselves more now as a knowledge bank, and maybe they're trying to create ideas out there in the world and research and study things that are on the ground and, and less have this direct effect. They're still doing education lending. And the NGOs are now sort of spreading reform. And as they've grown in influence in a way, they are spreading reform. And maybe this goes into future research. Do we know anything about the differences in content of reform that might be being promoted between, you know, say the World Bank and some of these international non-governmental organizations? Like, could we classify them as being different? Oh, that's very interesting. I can't speak to that from what we have done, but it 
would be interesting to look into to see if there's a link there. I mean, I guess, you know, what you're saying is we're sort of going through this moment of change. We don't really know what, where we're going or what's going to happen. And we keep using this word neoliberalism, which often is sort of used as, a, you know, a, a negative term, right? It's this, these bad ideas, these bad policies. And, and, you know, if you're sort of saying we're, we're moving beyond the paradigm of neoliberalism, we don't know what's coming next. I guess, you know, this decline that you that you're reporting, is this something that we should be worried about? Or is it something that we should rather be excited about? Because we're sort of moving into potentially non-neoliberal spaces of education. I think it really depends where you stand. I do think you can read it both ways, though. Uh, I think for those who felt neoliberal reforms were harmful, then less reform is probably a good thing. And I think kind of anti-government stances, less reform is also a good thing. I think if you think that education reforms sort of in broad scale have accomplished a lot of good things, greater numbers of kids in school, for example, then you might be more concerned. Exactly. And, and this, I think this is where the political debate will really come in. I think it's not just neoliberalism, as you were saying. It's also this larger notion of the liberal world order, which encompasses many other sort of political ideas beyond seeing the world through sort of economic efficiency. And I think that's going to be the big point of contention as to forcing people to really think, what is the value of the liberal world order? And do we want it to really decline? And I guess the final question that I would have is, you know, going back to some of this methodology that we started with, you know, I guess I keep thinking about the causal arrow. Like, how do we know that the decline of, say, democracy is sort of pointing and causing less education reform and not the reverse, right? Could it be that less education reform is pushing these anti-liberal ideas? I think like any sort of study of schooling, I would never want to position school as only living on one side of that arrow. I think part of what's so powerful about education as an institution is, is it does both. It, it lives on both directions. So you can do things in your research designs, I think, to show, to focus on one arrow or another. But both things would be happening. I mean, schooling is, is important because it provides a window into broader social processes and it reflects many social and political institutions, but it also helps create them down the road. So, Well, Patricia Bromley, thank you so much for joining Freshet. It's just such a fascinating study, and I, I really look forward to reading you and your team's many other publications that are likely to come out of this database. Thank you so much for having me on, Will. Patricia Bromley is an associate professor at Stanford. Her new co-written article is entitled Global Determinants of Education Reform, 1960 to 2017, which was published in the Sociology of Education. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guests interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ongunle, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shock Dev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.